0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. Well, around this time in the morning, 20 years ago today, November 12, 2003, there, were, there was a tanker filled with gas, followed by a car filled with explosives, and they were heading straight towards an Italian military base in Nasiriyah, Iraq. The guards they saw the tanker and they saw the car coming towards the base and they opened fire and they managed to kill the drivers but it still came through the gate and they opened fire and there was a brief firefight and then the attackers detonated the explosives in the car and it ignited and ignited with the tanker and the explosion was so massive that it knocked down Part of the three story building that served as the Italian headquarters. It also shattered glass across the Euphrates River in buildings. And there was a nearby car that was immediately basically incinerated with four people inside of it. That day is known today as the Nasaria bombing. You may remember it, in 2003. Most tragically, it killed nine Iraqi civilians, 18 Italian soldiers, and one Italian citizen. It was actually the most lives lost in the Italian military since World War II. And the deputy prime minister called it, this is Italy's 9-11, And not only that, the advisor to the prime minister, he said these words, and I think they're very sombering. Until today, many of us did not realize we were a country at war. I think he said out loud what probably the majority of the population was thinking. Man, I did not realize that we were at war. I think too many Christians today either don't realize or we just forget that we're a people at war. We're at war. But we're not at war physically. As Christians, we're at war spiritually all the time. You see, the moment that we placed our trust in Jesus... We were transferred, the Bible says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And ever since then, there's been a target that's been painted on all of our backs by Satan. And the arrows that he fires at that target, I believe they're laced with a sedative to make us asleep to the fact that there's a spiritual war going on. There's a spiritual battle that's raging all around us. And here in our passage, in Ephesians chapter 6, we see that God wants us to be aware, but also to stand firm in this spiritual fight that we find ourselves in. He wants us to stand firm. And so I'd like to look at how we can do that this morning. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start reading in verse 10. So if you would stand as we honor the word of God. word of God says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You can be seated this morning and let's go to the Lord one more time. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you that you're always there. We can cast our burdens upon you. We can tell you our need. We need you most of all. And so we just pray that you continue to move and to work. Pray that your Holy Spirit have freedom this morning. You are always working, God. Pray that you'd speak to our hearts through your word by your spirit and I pray if anybody's here they don't know Jesus God I pray that this morning they come to faith in him if you would just with your head bowed and your, your eyes closed just ask the Lord to speak to you this morning and then if you would just ask that the Lord would speak to those that are around you. Lord, we need you. We love you. We thank you for this time together. I pray that your will would be done. Your kingdom will come. and pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So I love this outline of the book of Ephesians. It was coined by... A guy named Watchman Nee. And he outlined it this way. In in chapters 1 through 3, you can title those chapters, Sit. And then in chapters 4 through 6, you can title it, Walk. And then in chapter 6, starting in verse 10, you can title it, Stand. So you have an outline, Sit, Walk, and then Stand. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul deals with our identity in Christ. And he talks about identity before he talks about fidelity. He talks about who we are in Christ, all the spiritual blessings that our Father has blessed us with in Christ, because we're in Christ. And then in chapter 4, in response to that identity, he says you should now walk. You should walk. In response to us being seated with Christ, you should now walk. So we sit, then we walk, and then in chapter 6, starting in verse 10, he says that we should now stand in this spiritual fight that we're in. We need to stand firm. And that phrase, that command really, to stand firm in verses 10 through 17 is repeated three times. He says, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm. And so the, really the crux of this passage is to stand firm. And so I'd like to look at how we can stand firm this morning. And I believe there's three things, or you could say, maybe call it three tactics that are going to allow us to stand firm. And I've organized it under the acronym ACU. Now, if you're former uh, armed forces, you would know that ACU actually stands for the Army Combat Uniform. And so that's not what it's going to stand for entirely this morning. But maybe if you think of the Army Combat Uniform, you think of, hey, here's, here's our tactics to stand firm. But here's what we see. Number one, in order to stand firm... We must acknowledge the source of our strength. We must acknowledge the source of our strength. In verse 10 it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So the very first step of standing firm is to acknowledge that our strength comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And now this command to be strong in the Lord is actually a passive command, which means that it's actually God who's infusing us with strength. It can be rendered be empowered or be inwardly strengthened. But it means to receive the Lord's power. That's what it means, receive the Lord's power. And it it says, be strong in the strength of his might. And so there's three different words describing the Lord's strength here. They're all different. Be strong in the strength of his might. And I'm like thinking about that. I'm like, Paul, why are you using all these words, man? I know you're smart, but why are you using all these words? But I honestly, I think it's because the power of Jesus is near indescribable, but it's certainly incomprehensible. There's not enough words to describe how powerful the Lord is how powerful Jesus is. Now there's a specific power that Paul talks about that we need to stand firm. We'll look at that in just a second. But I want us to consider just for a moment that we have access to the power of God in our lives. We have access to the power of God in our lives. Did you know that Paul already prayed that we would come to grips with this? If you look back at chapter one, it says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to understand the surpassing greatness of the power of God that we have access to. And he describes what kind of power Jesus has. And he says he is seated far above all rule and all authority. That's the power that he has. And then look what he says in chapter 2. In the next breath, Paul says this And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's been seated above all rule and authority. We have been seated with him. Paul is saying that we have the privilege to share in the power of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus. (laughs) Whoa, that's crazy. That is awesome. That is crazy. And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of our lives living inside of us. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that empowered Jesus for his life, for his ministry, in his resurrection, the same Holy Spirit lives inside of you and I. And what did Jesus say? When you receive the Spirit, you will receive power to be my witnesses. Now, if that's true, if the same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus for his life and his ministry lives inside of me, here's the question, does my life, does my ministry look like Jesus? Is it marked by his power? Or is it human effort? Is it human strength? You know what Paul said to the Corinthians? He says, I did not come to you in word only or deed, but in demonstration of power. So that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do we walk in that power? What did it look like to walk in that power? What did it look like when the Ephesians were hearing this? You remember what happened when Paul and Apollos came to Ephesus? Do you remember that? It was crazy. He had boldness to share the gospel. When we look at what being filled with the Spirit means, we look at boldness to share the gospel. We also see that Paul has this sweat rag that he's you know, carrying around and this sweat rag was given to people and they were healed and demons were cast out. All these things are marked with the power of God. And you say, well, no, I know, but that's just, that's just the apostles. Well, guess what? Stephen and Philip in the book of Acts, they also walked in the power of God. Does our life, does our ministry look like, is it marked by the power of God. Leads me to say this. I believe that we can expect opposition when we're on mission. We can expect opposition when we're on mission. If we're not experiencing opposition from the enemy, then he may have us right where he wants us. Complacent, apathetic, lethargic to the things of God, to the mission I think Paul is presupposing in spiritual warfare here that these people are on mission. And that's why there's opposition. That's why. See, Jesus has defeated Satan and the powers of darkness. The Bible says that he has put them to open shame. <laughs> is that amazing? He's put them to open shame. And that's why it says we don't go out and fight in order to secure victory. We fight, we stand from a place of it already being secured. We fight from a place of victory. We're just holding victory ground. That's what it is. Jesus already won the victory. That's why we're standing. We are standing from a seated position. And so number one, we need to acknowledge the source of our spiritual power. But number two, we must be conscious of the spiritual battle. We must be conscious of the spiritual battle. Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. According to a Gallup poll done this year, belief in God and angels and the devil and and demons, heaven and hell, they're at an all-time low amongst Americans right now. And interestingly, at the very bottom is the devil, is belief in the devil. And now this poll said that it's more likely for religious people to believe in those things. Like, duh. You know, more likely. But here's what I think Satan does. I think he gets the majority of the population to reject his existence. And he tries to get the majority of the church to neglect his existence or at least his presence, at least his activity. We're not going to stand very firm if we forget that we're in a fight. We must be conscious of the spiritual struggle that's around us. And this word for struggle, it actually means a wrestling match. It's close. It's hand to hand. That's how close, that's how dire it is. That's the reality of the situation, Paul says. It's like a wrestling match that we're all in. Don't forget it. Be conscious of it. And now Paul, he's, he's done some reconnaissance and he's going to give us a briefing. And this briefing includes a couple things. He's going to brief us on the identity of the enemy. Let's look at it. Paul identifies our enemy as the devil and the powers of darkness. This word for uh, devil, it means accuser or slanderer. And you probably know in other places it says that Satan is the accuser of the what? Of the brethren, of the accuser, of the of the brethren, but he's not by himself. Paul says, he actually leads the powers of darkness. When Paul says against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, he's not referring to physical leaders of government, whatever. He's talking about the spiritual hierarchy that exists, the unseen realm, Satan's empire, Satan's kingdom. There's a hierarchy. There's an order to it. If you remember in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, you remember that Daniel gets a vision and then he prays to God, God, what does this mean? (laughs) And then it says that an angel, three weeks later after he prays for God, what does this mean? This angel appears to him three weeks later. And he says, hey Daniel, guess what? So you remember that that time that you prayed for the, the understanding of the vision? Yeah, I was actually dispatched, like, the second you prayed for that. Um, But I was actually held up by this guy over here called the Prince of the Kingdom of Persia. And he held me up. And it was actually, I had to, like, uh, tag team call in uh, Mr. Michael, the archangel, and he had to come and help me and free me up, and that's why I'm here so late. The Prince of Persia doesn't refer to some... Normal prince, it doesn't refer to Jake Gyllenhaal in the video game-based movie, Prince of Persia. If you've seen that, you're a real one. No, it refers to a spiritual reality, an entity, a being that's over a region. And the idea is that there's a hierarchy. And that's what Paul says. He lists the hierarchy. He lists that Satan has a kingdom and there is structure to it. That's our enemy. The devil and the powers of darkness. He briefs us on that. But he also briefs us on the strategy of the enemy. If you look at what he says, it says to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That word for schemes is the word we get our, our word method from. The idea is that Satan has a method. He has a plan to come against us. If you remember what Peter says, Peter says that Satan prowls around like A roaring lion, he's not the roaring lion of Judah, that's Jesus. But he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those that he might devour. Constantly seeking those he might devour. And how does he devour us? He devours us with deception. Those are his schemes. He seeks to deceive us. And I honestly I believe that one of the schemes, one of the the deceptions that we often as as the church fall into is actually found at the beginning of verse 12 when he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood because Satan wants us to believe that our struggle is against flesh and blood. He wants us to believe that our struggle, our enemy, is people. That's what he wants us to believe. How we need to remember this. Oh man. Especially when election season rolls around. yeah. God remind us. It's not Democrats, it's not Republicans, it's not Libertarians. We don't struggle against people. They're not the enemy. It's not people who commit terrible things over in the Middle East that we see on TV. They're not the enemy. It's not people who are pushing agendas, trying to identify as things that they're clearly not. Those people aren't the enemy. Jesus died for those people, for us, because he loved them so much. And you know what his heart on the cross was? When people thought he was their enemy, you know what his heart for them was? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. People are not the enemy. That's one of the schemes. That's one of the deceptions that Satan wants us to fall into. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Many of you know that World War II is one of the deadliest, is the deadliest war in human history. 70 to 85 million people died. We all know that Hitler killed six million Jews. Just so much evil. But a lot of people don't realize that the Nazis and Hitler himself, they were obsessed with demonic and occult practices. There's a book entitled Hitler's Monsters. Very interesting. And it talks about how they tried to tap into supernatural power. Here's a quote from it. There's never been greater evidence that links the supernatural with Nazism. Nazism. Hitler studied occult doctrines because they provided material for his political propaganda and manipulation of the public. He was particularly interested in wielding magic to manipulate others. That's crazy. It's crazy that Hitler realized what a lot of Christians forget that there are real supernatural powers at play. That's the reality. We must be conscious of the spiritual battle. And then lastly, we must uniform ourselves in supernatural armor. Now, I checked. Uniform can be used as a verb in that way, so it's all good. You can use it that way. Wanted to make sure. We must clothe ourselves in the armor of God. We must put on the armor of God, Paul says. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now here's just a little kind of geeked out moment real quick that I'd like to share with you guys. If you look back at verse 10, that word to be strong in the Lord, that's the Greek word in dunamao. It literally means to be inwardly strengthened, Okay. But if you look at verse 11, when Paul kind of tees uh, you know, up the armor of God, he doesn't talk about it in verse 11, but he starts here. Well, he actually uses a word called in duo. And what Paul, So you have endunama'o and you have enduo. And so what Paul's doing, he's actually using an alliteration and words that sound similar and sound alike to cue us in to realize that if we want to be empowered, endunama'o with the word of God, or the power of God, then we must, in duo, put on the armor of God. So the armor of God is connected to the power of God. The armor of God is what God has equipped us with to stand firm. That's what Paul is doing here. So let's dive into the armor of God. The belt of truth. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. That phrase, it just means to wrap truth around your waist, wrap it around your waist like a belt. Now, a Roman soldier's belt is kind of more like a tunic, um, and, and it would have, you know, a place for the sword to be sheathed in, and it would, it would, hold, it would hold up your garment, though. This was the most important part, because they would, have lowing, uh, they would have flowy, low-hanging garments back in the day, and in order to have freedom and to be able to maneuver, they would have to tuck in that garment into this belt. And so what I think Paul is getting at is that the belt of truth Gives us freedom to function in this battle, in this fight that we're in. The belt of truth, living according to the truth, gives us freedom to function. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth brings freedom. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. I am the way and the truth. Though his word is truth, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. So we should clothe ourselves, wrap our lives with God's truth, with Jesus, to live in accordance with it. And it will provide freedom to function in this battle that we're in. Because here's the deal, lies, they tend to lock us up. They tend to enslave us. You know, a lie that was very prevalent back in the day led to slavery. And that was that people were unequal because of their skin color. That lie literally enslaved people. But God's truth, that we're all equal, in his eyes, that brought freedom. And so lies, they tend to lock us up. Truth brings freedom. Now, this isn't very popular in our postmodern society because whatever our fleshly impulse is, let's just slap the label. Okay, that's my truth. That's a fleshly impulse. I'm just going to say my truth so now I can justify doing whatever I want to do. Postmodernism. No, no, no. Truth is truth. Jesus is the truth. God's word is the truth. And truth sets us free. Truth brings freedom. That's the reality. You know, if we remember back to the tactics of the the enemy, his schemes, what is it? It's deception. So this is the first piece of armor. Of course it is. Because his tactics are to lie and to deceive. Somebody put together a list, top three lies of Satan. Number one, sin will not hurt you. Number two, God does not love you. Number three, works will save you. Sin will not hurt you. God does not love you. And works will save you. I would add one more. And I would just say that Satan loves to deceive the child of God into not embracing his or her identity in Christ. He loves to whisper in our ear truth about who we are aren't, if I can say that in Christ. And so we need to clothe ourselves, wrap our lives with God's truth. Secondly, we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Paul says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So this would, of course, cover the majority of the vital organs, including the heart. And so what is Paul getting at when he says righteousness? Well, I believe he's talking really about two facets of righteousness. Number one, I believe he's talking about our positional righteousness in God's eyes. And then number two, I believe he's talking about our practical righteousness that we're supposed to pursue in response to our positional righteousness. What's our positional righteousness? It's the fact that God has declared us righteous the moment we place our faith in Christ. God now sees us. He imputes. He credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. That's in our standing. That's in our position. That's unmoving. It's, it can't change. That's how God sees you 24-7, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's your position before God. Can't change. Practically in your life, do we always live righteously? Uh, No. (laughs) We don't. Now Paul has actually said this positional and practical distinction already in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.24 and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's positional. But then in practical righteousness, he says in Ephesians 5, 9, for the fruit of light, in other words, our life, consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So we should live right because we've been declared right. That's what Paul is getting at. Because Proverbs 4, 23 says this, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And we don't, when we live out of step and unrighteously, it can be a death blow in our lives. But when we focus on our position, it impacts our practical. And so we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Next, the gospel shoes of peace. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Footwear has always been essential in battle with armies. In the Revolutionary War, they actually, a lot of the soldiers didn't have shoes, so they would fight in the snow barefoot, pass, right? No thanks. And it was pretty rough. But the Roman soldier, their, their sandal, it was more of like a cleat because at the bottom of their shoe were spikes. And they would, it would allow them to position themselves firmly in the ground to be unmoving. And so when Paul says, with the preparedness of the gospel of peace, or other translations say the readiness of the gospel of peace, some people think, well, okay, it's, it's being ready to share the gospel with other people. And that could be what Paul's getting at. But because of the context, it's standing firm. It's not necessarily going out, but it's standing firm. And those are cleats under us to firmly plant us. And we'll look at the shield next. I think he's talking about the settled confidence that the gospel has brought us peace with God. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Isn't it nice to know that God has our back? (laughs) Right? We have so many forces against us. Satan, the powers of darkness, the world, our flesh. But God says, if I'm for you, what can man do to you? If I'm for you, who can be against you? And it's the gospel that has brought us peace with God. And so we need to wear the shoes of peace. Next, the shield of faith. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now the word for shield that actually means door because it was about four foot wide two or I'm sorry, four foot tall, two feet wide, and the average Roman soldier was about five feet tall. So when this artillery attack would happen, usually at the beginning of the battle, they would position themselves behind it like a door and it would cover their full body. It would be covered um, in um, pitch or whatever in order to take the, the when the flaming darts would hit it, it would extinguish them. And so the idea is to shield oneself from the initial stage of battle. So what's the shield of faith? I believe it's choosing to believe and trust God when we're tempted to doubt him or his word. And you know, doubting God happens and is always the temptation at the initial stage of the temptation. Do you remember what happened with Adam and Eve? Do you remember what the lie was that he wanted to propagate to them? You know what the lie was? Is God's holding out on you. He'll know that you'll be like him. You're going to be like God. That was the lie. Did Satan come right out and say that first? If you remember back, he said this Did God really say that the day that you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you'll surely die? Did God really say that? What was that? Doubt God's word. Be unclear about God's word. Be confused about God's word. And then the lie can just come right in. His artillery, his fiery arrows, happen at the initial stage of attack. Do we choose to trust God, to believe his word? Sometimes it's these crazy thoughts that come to our mind. We're like, where did that come from? What the? Whoa. The flaming arrows of the evil one, the initial stage of attack. We need to choose to believe and to trust God's word. Next, the helmet of salvation, and take the helmet of salvation. Pretty self-explanatory. It was a helmet. It guarded the head, but I, I really believe that this may be the most important piece of armor. They're all important, of course. But one strike to the head and it's lethal. So what is the helmet of salvation? I believe it's the helmet of the assurance of our salvation. It's the assurance of our salvation. Satan knows that if he can unsettle us about our eternal destiny, then we'll be of no use here on earth. He does this in a couple ways, tries to unsettle us. You remember, the devil, what is he? He's the accuser, (laughs) the accuser, the slanderer. He slanders God to us, and he slanders us to God. He's the accuser of the brethren. So when we act sinfully, he comes into our ears, and he's like, hey, you know what? How on earth could a Christian do that for the umpteenth time? You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Come on, stop deceiving yourself. How could a Christian act like that? Watch that, look at that, hear that, participate in that. You're not a Christian. He does it when we act sinfully. He also does it theologically. If you remember, in Acts chapter 15, the church is just growing, spreading like wildfire. Even persecution is doing nothing but those Mario speed ramps that just boost it. That's what the persecution's doing. Just boosting the growth of the church. But then, some Jews from Judea started saying, you have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. You remember what happened? Kind of like pumped the brakes for a second. Hey, Paul, uh, you can get the apostles. uh, Let's just uh, convene in Jerusalem and and settle this. Let's all, we're kind of spreading out, but eh, we need to come back. And you know what Peter said? He said that that teaching of adding works to salvation was putting a yoke on the believers, the disciples' necks that wasn't meant for them to bear or their fathers to bear. And so Satan likes to theologically confuse us as to what's necessary to be saved. Back then, it was the law of Moses. After the Reformation, everybody's like, yeah, okay, we know we're saved by grace through faith apart from works, that's fine. And Satan's like, oh, okay, okay. What do I do next? Oh, you know what? I'm going to redefine some stuff. So I know I'm saved by grace through faith apart from works, but you know what? I'm going to redefine faith. You know what faith is? Faith is an all-out commitment of every, every area of your life. Surrender everything to Jesus. That way, whenever they fail and don't look like Jesus, they're going to think their faith isn't real and then all. And it's just going to trickle down. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to deceive in the definitions. That's what Satan does today. You see, the issue of salvation is not you giving your life to Jesus. It's him giving his life to you. That's what salvation is about. And it's received by grace through faith apart from works so that no one would boast. It's grace through faith. And so he deceives us to get us unsure about our salvation when we act sinfully and he does it theologically. Don't believe that garbage. God is an amazing, loving father. What father would point to his kid and say, hey, Junior, you know what? I love you so much. I want you to do your chores. I want you to obey me. And guess what? If you don't do your chores, you prove you're not my child. Peace. <laughs> what? Or I'm going to kick you out of the family if you don't obey me. What? No, you, your obedience earns, you, you earn it through your obedience. What? No. God wants us to love and obey him from a place of security. You're my child. I love you. Nothing you can do can change that. You don't have to prove it. You can't lose it. That's grace. Paul wants you to have the assurance of salvation. To know that heaven is your home. And you know what Paul calls the helmet of salvation in 1 Thessalonians? He calls it the helmet of the hope of salvation. In the Bible, hope is a confident and a joyful a joyful expectation. God wants you to be confident, joyful, and excited that you're going to heaven. And to live out of a place of overflow in that assurance. But when you doubt, what's the opposite of hope? Hopelessness. Depression. God doesn't want that for you, for any of us. So let's wear the helmet of salvation. Lastly, the sword of the Spirit. Paul says the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I love how the armor of God is bracketed with the word of God. We have the truth at the beginning, and we have the sword, which is the word at the end. It's awesome. So Paul uses, he doesn't use the word logos, which is often a word for word more of a a body of truth or words, he actually uses a different word here, and it's the word rhema. Rhema. And actually, many scholars believe, it refers to the spoken word. The uttered word of God. When we choose to speak God's word, when we choose to utter the word of God. Now, certain camps have taken this and been like, sweet new Ferrari, speak, 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 speak. (laughs) It's like, no, 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 that's not what we're getting at here. But there is power in speaking the word of God. Number one, because Satan can't read our mind. And so you know what Jesus did when he was tempted? Hey, take these stones, make them into bread. Here's Jesus. I'm just going to meditate. Think about the truth that man shall not live by bread alone. He didn't do that. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Satan needed to hear it. Sometimes when we're going through something, we just need to shout it, just need to declare it. The spoken word of God, there's power in that. There's power in that. I don't really know fully what it entails, but there's power in the spoken word of God in the rhema. And so I'll close with this story. I heard a pastor tell a true story about a woman that he counseled. This woman was married and had two young kids, but she had an extremely hard past, uh, abused when she was young. She'd become addicted to prescription medication. She was slowly becoming an alcoholic. She heard voices all the time. She'd regularly cut herself, wanted to hurt herself. She spent time on two separate occasions in psychiatric hospitals. On top of all that, her marriage was falling apart. Well after about a year of this pastor just, you know, working with her, counseling her, he finally just decided, you know what? I'm going to write up some documents, some pieces of paper. And he did, and he filled them with truth about who she was in Christ. Declarations. I'm a child of God, I'm justified, I'm forgiven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he told her, he said, "I want you to take this list and I want you to go home and wait for everyone everyone to be asleep." And I want you to declare these out loud. And so she did. She went home. She took this list. Declared all of it out loud. She came back to this pastor. And afterwards, she had been completely healed and forgiven of all the things she was struggling with. Delivered. Set free from voices, set free from the impulses to harm or hurt herself, all the addictions, completely delivered, completely set free. The victory came when she uttered the word of God. Sometimes, Satan, we need to declare it so he can hear it. Sometimes we just need to hear it ourselves. We need to declare the word of God so that we can hear it. Sometimes it just needs to come out. <laughs> not staying in here because there's so many other things going on in there and we just need to declare it. Who I am in Christ. Satan has no authority over me. I'm bought with the blood of Jesus. So as the band comes, I just want to remind us, ACU, for his standing firm in this struggle that we're in. We need to, number one, acknowledge the source of our strength is Jesus can't do this on our own, guys. Number two, we need to be conscious of this spiritual battle that we're in. Let's not neglect it. Let's not forget it. Number three, we need to uniform, to clothe ourselves in the armor of God.